uncovering the most amazing stories from the most talented innovators and creatives in marketing tech and digital. This is the Wonderful People Podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Wonderful People Podcast. Looking forward, as always, to an amazing guest today and a guest who talks a lot about digital, a lot about data, and a lot about site. Uh, two of those things Phil Jones has got experience with. I'll let you guess which two. And uh, well, in fact, actually, let's get straight on to it. Phil Jones is a man who is, uh, you know, a man that many of us know, but he's of a, he's of a certain maturity and he's of a certain skill set in life. And he was one of the original people in digital. Now, is it true, Phil, that you were actually, I read somewhere, you were actually inducted into the very first Digital Hall of Fame? Well, Dan, surprisingly, uh, I was. And what makes it even more interesting, that was in 2012. It was the first Digital Hall of Fame when Beamer and the drum got together and thought it'd be really nice to look at people who contributed over the decade into digital. And they set this off. And I, I was one of the people inducted to that first Digital Hall of Fame. And every year now, there are two people inducted to it so it's been great for me over the years to see what sort of people are being inducted now uh, as to that original group so uh, one of the original group was the guy who actually invented the internet which i thought was quite interesting so that's, it'd be hard to beat that one amazing um, uh, but uh that was fantastic but what was weird i suppose is that everybody else in that group that were inducted, they'd probably spent all of their lives in digital. Whereas I'd actually come from a hot metal typography background, which is just about as far away from digital as you can ever imagine. So how I ended up all those years later, as you say, as a more mature individual (laughs) uh, in the Hall of Fame, I have got no idea. Um, But I was very, very proud of that. So a part of it was just building one of the first digital agencies in the UK and being around when it all started, if you like, when it was interactive CD-ROMs before it even became the internet. So I think being around a long time and we were very successful as a business, real time. And then we merged with a direct marketing agency, Evans and Scott became EHS real time. And then with another DM agency called Bran, and around about 2004 is when I, I packed in my football boots, decided that I was going and left my office December 2003. And very weirdly, the person who took my office from me and took my PA from me and actually became the MD of the company I just left is today's guest. How strange. Well, like the circle of life, like some kind of virtuous circle there. We'd never, we'd never met each other and it was just one of those things. But I then had to go back and ask him permission for me to keep the name real time. So the actual, uh, okay. yeah, the actual URL, which was realtime.co.uk, I needed the permission of the new guy to let me have that. And uh, um. If you'd have said no, we wouldn't have been interviewing him today, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> so there's no punch-ups today and there's no fighting today. Everyone's happy. Yeah, took my office, took my PA, kindly gave me my name and told me to bog off and go and retire. There and we here, go. And here I am, Dan. <laughs> Still friends. Will you introduce our guest, please, Phil? 
With a diverse career, both as a chief exec and a chief customer officer, today's guest has been at the heart of some gargantuan digital transformations and has successfully transformed some of Britain's best-loved member-led businesses. His experience in using data to build relationships that are rewarding for customers and profitable for the businesses has seen him snapped up into top roles at the likes of Tesco, Saga, and most recently, the co-op. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Matt Atkinson, Chief Membership and Marketing Officer at the Co-op. Almost two decades have passed since I last saw Matt, and I'm incredibly excited to hear what he has been up to since leaving the agency world for the big world of business. Dan and I, personally, really looking forward to finding out just how he and his team took a fundamentally offline business, the size of the Co-op, online during a pandemic, and how they took advantage and created so much opportunity. Matt Atkinson. Oh, Phil, it's it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. And it's lovely to see you again. Uh, And I hope it won't be another 20 years till we see each other again (laughs) properly. I couldn't believe it's about 17 years. 2004. Well, that's crazy, isn't it? How time flies. (laughs) Brilliant. Matt, welcome. It's, it's great to have you with us. And before we get into all those details, the amazing um, bio that we just read, the first question we ask all of our guests is, if you were to be stuck in a lift with someone, who would it be and why? It's a great question, isn't it? Because you, you want to sort of go for one of those inspiring answers, you know, Muhammad Ali, right. you know, um, although they probably beat the hell out of me. But... Um, <laughs> Uh, it's actually Sarah, my wife. Um, so, you know, everyone's going to go, oh. but it's true. You know, I, I, I just because I never get tired of spending time with her and it would be easy to be in a confined space with her because we'd play all kinds of games, uh, run me carp, I spy, uh, tic-tac-toe. So, so it would be an easy thing to do, Dan. Great answer. Oh. And you're the only person that's ever said that. So this, this is a life lesson right there. And if my wife listens to this, I would say the same thing as well. <laughs> yeah. I would say Will Greenwood. Will Greenwood was on last. His wife came forth. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. And she was a shoe-in, I think. You and, know. And, it was, and it was only because it was like an afterthought. I said, oh, yes, I'm, I'm a wife also. <laughs> we get a little place in there. Yeah, that is, that's a great answer. Brilliant. Matt, was something I didn't know about you until I was um, doing the research is that you grew up in Singapore and unlike most expat kids, you went to the local state school and were in fact the only non-Singaporean in your class. How do you think your childhood has shaped you as a person and the direction that your career has taken? Yeah, I mean, it was... It's interesting, if you read my school reports, I was a very, very naughty boy. And when I went to Singapore, a lot changed for me because my mum worked for the World Service. She got a placement out there. And because she worked for the World Service and it was a government joint venture, I was given this amazing opportunity to go into local school. And and that's what I did. Um, and as you said, I was literally, I mean, was the only white person in the whole school. And so you learn a lot of things, actually. You learn a lot about different cultures. 
you know, the wonderful thing about Asian culture is it's very welcoming, you know, very friendly people and very curious people. And the thing that I suppose I learned a few things, um, behave like a guest at a dinner party. You know, it's sort of, it's not really about you, but you're sort of, you're, you're in, you're going into their world and you need to be curious and interested about their world. So, so I learned, I also learned a different way of thinking because in Asia, you know, their whole mentality is, is not sort of competitive, but funnily enough, quite cooperative. They're into the sort of the everyone wins. They're not so about we want to win and you lose. Um, and so I, I learned a lot about it. And I also learned discipline. It's the first time in my life I ever learned discipline because I... And I learned how to learn. That was the most interesting thing. I had a brilliant headmaster who just kind of welcomed me and turned me from being a completely badly behaved, all-disciplined child into being somebody who had a bit more focus and a bit more sort of enthusiasm for learning. The problem for me was I was a sportsman. So that's all I really wanted to do. I didn't really want to do anything in education. So I learned a lot from that experience. Actually, you're not, I don't think the question comes up later. So you just mentioned being a sportsman. Uh, are you, you're a triathlete, aren't you? Yes, yeah. I was a very serious swimmer. I come from a swimming family. My dad was a very, very, very successful swimmer. Um, and that sort of took me into triathlon. And I'm still, I'm what? I think it's 30 years I've been racing triathlon. Wow. Um, I'm on my, this year will be my 10th Ironman. So I'm doing Ironman Mallorca in October when I do it with my brother. Uh, so yeah. it's, it's and by the way, no jokes about the Brownlee boys because we're, we're about, you know, they finished and we're still starting. So, <laughs> but, but I'm not so young, Phil, so I'm still pretty happy to get around the night. I, th- I was thinking That's back, if it's, if it's so long since I last saw you, you must have already been six. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. although, although our <laughs> listeners can't see you, I can see you, and you do look as though you're a triathlete, I've got to say. <laughs> so I'm quite impressed uh, and you're a cyclist yeah I mean that's been a big part of my life all the way through one of the things that I'm super proud of is that um, at Tesco we were involved in setting up a cycling club called the Badgers um, and uh, we used to take about 50 or 60 people away every year it's still going it's probably I can't remember that 17 years old this year or that and we we were partnered with action medical research and we would fundraise we'd pick a project and we would fundraise every year for a particular project and action medical research is an amazing charity because it's focused on kids uh kids health they were the guys that did the polio vaccine and so every year we would fund a project completion and this is at the bleeding edge of research so things like we funded a program that's now in the NHS that can discover prenatal blindness so kids aren't born blind. Wow. Um, and I was sort of super lucky as a result of that to get involved in quite a lot of cycling stuff over the years. So I know that you'll probably talk about the football, um, but yesterday was a big day in cycling because the Manx missile is back. So he won. I mean, it was the most amazing Tour de France day yesterday. And he's been written off, you know, Mark Cavendish was kind of written off two or three years ago. 
and he won the final, the stage yesterday and it was unbelievable and obviously oh, really? it's a co-op it's a manchester business the co-op will be super proud of the manx missile bringing it home as well as as well as being a football town so everyone's doubly happy as a result of the results yesterday well, actually as as a mank I was really pleased that Luke Shaw made both of those goals last night. So that's that, that made me feel good. Yeah, so you, right. you, you, you brought up Tesco there, Matt. Mm. Uh, Tesco club card was, and still is to many, the ultimate data-driven loyalty scheme, which was the account that Havas hung its hat on for well over a decade. You were then Lord overturned up all things marketing and digital at Tesco headquarters. What was that shift like? And what do you see as the big innovations and takeaways of your four-year tenure at Tesco? Yeah, so it's, it's I mean, Clubcard, I think, is on everyone's CV is either the creator or the imaginator of it. It's kind of interesting story. I mean, ultimately, Tim Mason and Terry were the architects of Clubcard because they had the kind of vision to create something. And then we, you know, you, Phil, Terry Hunt, you know, there were a whole group of us who were involved yeah. in curating Club Card and through many journeys, through many iterations um, and along with Clive and, and Edwina. And I think it's really interesting for me that sort of journey of being a sort of practical advisor and helper on the outside for over a decade and then moving into the tent um, in that sort of transition from Terry to Phil Clark and then to Dave. And, and, and there's so much to sort of take from that. I suppose there's a couple of things that you asked me. One is kind of what did I get out? What was it like moving from one world to the other? And then in that period, what was it that we did that was kind of interesting for, for, from a sort of club card and transformation perspective? I think the first thing is you, you actually, you, you learn, I think, when you're on the other side to the agency side, I think it's quite difficult to understand the dynamics of what it's like being a client. Um, and it's often quite difficult to understand why a lot of the advice that you give doesn't land or a lot of your time is, is, is wasted or, or doesn't find a way through to the other side. And the, th the biggest thing that I learned really is that there's so, unfortunately, so, and increasingly for a customer officer the world of agencies is a very small proportion of what they have to deal with you know it's a very and 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 in many senses sometimes that's quite troubling but also it's the changing nature of how a chief customer's job works these days in the sense that you've got so many dimensions to it and so much internal resource that you manage that historically would probably been on the outside, that your teams have got bigger. You know, digital products are a great example of that, Phil uh, and Dan, where, you know, if you, think, if you think back 15 or 16 years, I'd have been briefing you on developing a website or an app, or right. whereas today I've got an internal team of, you know, 200 people building technology. So, so, so it's a sort of big change. I think the other thing that I really learned was um, you know this sense of really understanding the critical levers of business and the drivers of value, right? And also how the components of an organisation work to deliver value to customers, and a real appreciation uh, and an understanding of the different components that create value. 
So in Tesco, you know, the most powerful relationship is the one between commercial and marketing. And it's the same in most retailers. So if there's great relationship, a great tension between the commercial function and the marketing function, there's a lot of success created. And, and so you begin to understand and appreciate the different parts of the organization that are critical in creating value. And as a result of that, you're actually able to find in the way that you try to do when you're doing a pitch, for example, you, you begin to uncover the nuggets of gold that exist in parts of the organization that you can bring to life or shine a light on that really differentiate you in the market. And sometimes you find them in the most extraordinary places. Do you know what I mean? You, you, so, that, so that curiosity that you learn on the outside if you keep it when you go on the inside, it's really, really helpful. And then if I just think about the things that we did in that period of time, I mean, I think the transformation of, of Tesco's technology estate was probably something that I would really call out, technology and data. So we, we and I did this with a guy called Mike McNamara, who's, who's doing an amazing job for Target in the US. He was the CIO. And effectively what we did was we re- re-architected the whole of the organization to being a modern agile technology platform wow. with APIs, layers and services. Now, without getting too technical, it was a big deal because it's enabled Tesco to do so many more things now as a result. And I remember doing the pitch to the board because it was a hundred million pound project. And um, there were a lot of things that needed money at that time. And um, Terry always had this thing, which is if you can't get it on one page, it ain't worth talking about. And he's thinking, I said to Mike, how are we going to get this on one page? We spent days and days thinking about it. And I said to him, you know what? Basically, we're going to ask them, ask them for the same amount of money that we would spend on building one Tesco Extra. That's all we're asking them for. And that's what we did. So we went to the board and we basically said the headline was, Basically, all what we need is we need the same amount of money that we would spend on one shop to completely transform our future and invest in the future and unlock that. And, and it was just, I think we had them in the first five or six minutes. Yeah, okay, that's fine. Uh, and then they were sort of into the detail of it. So that's one thing. Brilliant. And then what resulted from that was all the innovation and you're seeing it now. So. Um, Tesco Pay, Digital Club Card, Personalised Offers, Delivery Saver, all of the kind of transformation of the kind of omni-channel um, activity or the new data science community, you know, algorithms being used in the supply chain and where all those things. So that's that for me. Is, and there's lots of wins. But one of the things that I, I still am super proud of is Tesco Huddle which was we, I was given the challenge of creating a tablet, you know, I mean, you know, a supermarket retailer creating a tablet. Who's going who's gonna to have one of those on their desk, you know, when Apple and, and everyone's going. And we just had the most amazing time doing it. So naming it, sourcing it, creating it bottom up. And in the year we launched it, we beat Apple uh, in market share terms in that one year and um it was 99 quid that tablet and you could buy it with i think it was 40 pounds worth of club card vouchers 
and it was it was spec for spec the most amazing thing and of, of course on it we had our streaming video we had tesco you know dot com and we had all our services so i was sort of super super proud of that so those are those are just a few things that i could i can i can glance back on and, and think wow that was amazing wow that's like you can spend the whole whole interview could be on tesco couldn't it i know it's like <laughs> three careers worth in like 10 minutes right there that's phenomenal and some of that you know some of the layers and insights which i know you didn't go into details but just to see the intricacy of you know setting up that that framework and that whole kind of business transformation piece and how that's yielding results years on you know i think is is an amazing example and i think just moving on matt because we have to unfortunately but you know data was at the heart of the sort of your next big career move as you uh as you took that reputation and using data to build relationships not you went to saga and to help move away the brand, you know, the brand from the pipe and slippers brigade to a younger, more active audience. So, I mean, yeah. Wait, excuse me, excuse me, mate. <laughs> <laughs> I did not. I wasn't pointing at you whilst I was talking. Yeah, I, I, I saw that finger. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, can you tell us a little bit how you tackled that? I mean, how did you get Phil Jones up his pipe and slippers? <laughs> and, you know, what opportunities were there for a brand like that? You know, and, and you know, bringing that into a post-COVID environment, you know, what opportunities do brands have today to sort of go on that journey? Yeah, so, I mean, I think there's a big thing here, you know, I learned it at P&G, which is diagnosis before action. You know, we're all guilty of this. You, you know, we spend a lot of time thinking about tactics and, you know, channels, when actually there's, you get these moments where you need to, sort of spend some time really understanding the problem and the insight and the opportunity um and sagas you know i mean we'd all you know everyone knows it i mean there were there were, there were i remember at the time going into wh smiths and looking at the birthday card section and in the birthday card section is a you know the 50 cards there's a saga card you know you know you're in trouble when you've hit 50 and there's a birthday card for Saga because you get on the Saga mailing list and then you're done for because you get the brochures, you know, your, your inbox is filled with all, all the direct mail, uh, which, of course, Phil and I love creating. Um, but so the, the first thing that we did is I've learned this actually over the years was we did a sort of deep set of work on what's the issue in this category. So we did semiotics um we did a, a language study of how people were talking about aging and how people are talking about um the whole thing of aging and and it was just so interesting because you could really really see the brutal reality of the, of what everyone was missing and i sort of describe it as um you know, you, you could, as 50 was, anyone who was 50 would talk like they were 40. Anyone who was 60 would talk like they were 50. Anyone who was 70 would talk like they were. So we did groups of people in their 80s. You'd say, you'd talk, you'd, you know, you'd start on the way and then say, oh, we're from Saga. And they'd go, oh, God, I've never gone. I'm too old. For, I'm too young for a Saga cruise. And you're going, they're 80. <laughs> and you go, oh, my goodness, we've got a proper problem here. And, and the reality was that really what they wanted was a brand to celebrate their youth and to and their mindset, not to, um, 
And that's where the insight came from. And that basically relaunched the brand. Um, the, 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 and we did all of that work with VCCP, who did a fantastic job. And I think are still working on, on Saga and I think doing a, a great job in, in challenging times. And it was the, the, the philosophy was keep doing. So, you know, we want to be the brand that helps inspire you and enable you to have a brilliant life after 50. And we want to provide the inspiration and tools and mechanics and all. And, and, and so once you've got an idea like that, everything else is pretty easy because the membership scheme was called what? Possibilities. So, so and then you go, well, what are we going to do? Well, you can, we can create a whole load of things around education and entertainment and music and learning. And, and suddenly out of all of that came... A sort of you know and 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 then we we did i'm a big believer of, of sort of signals of purpose so then because you've got to prove that purpose right so we relaunched the magazine which is an iconic thing and uh that made you know and some of the people that are in the saga magazine are just brilliant icons for people in their 50s 60s 70s and 80s we i re, re you know i was involved in rebuilding a cruise ship from scratch and so you know I, I mean I've built shops but this is a 300 million pound project wow. and we got to design it and name it and what did we call it spirit of discovery um and the second one that's surviving is called spirit of adventure so we redesigned all of the travel portfolio you know from being um you know, uh, holidays where you get on a coach and go from A to B to being much more about exploring and adventure. So, you know, it was a big old, um, big old change for Saga. I mean, the, the biggest problem really, and, and must, much of this played out after I, I left, was that, you know, it just didn't quite have enough money to invest in really making all of that famous and visible and it's that classic you thing of long and short of it, which is, you know, you need enough money to tell people about the difference. And if you don't, you don't get the market share growth. And, and so the, the frustration for me in it really was that was all this amazing stuff that you couldn't quite make it visible enough to the world. Um, but, but it was a, you know, a, a successful in many senses and then of course we did a big transformation of kind of digital technology and, and and channels and you know exciting stuff we moved all the data into a cloud-based data platform which allowed saga to do all kinds of modern and interesting things you know went from kind of having quite a traditional direct marketing business to being a, a modern one we put adobe in and suddenly we could unlock all of the value from personalization and journeys. And the, the one thing that we had to slay was this, this sort of view that, that older folks like me and Phil don't use the internet, which is, of course, complete load of nonsense. And, you know, our 80-year-old customers were just as happy checking in online and, and retrieving their quotes as, as were, you know, us sort of 50-somethings. Are you enjoying our podcast? Remember to subscribe, share, and leave us a review. You've mentioned two really interesting brands, and then from there you you moved to the co-op, like, and it's got a very northern flavour to it. The co-op, it's like the area where I grew up. But can you tell us about the challenges 
that you had there at the co-op and, and what you did. And at the end of this, you can tell us today's a, quite an interesting day for you in terms of the co-op. So you can share yeah. that news with us later. Yeah, no, no problem. Well, it's interesting. When I left Tesco, I, I said that I was never, never going to go back and work in retail. Um, but I always had a, a brand on my list, which I like most. In fact, I think most people in Britain really like the co-op. You know, it's just one of those brands where you, you just, you know, they're good guys, you think. And, and that, you know, it's 176 or 177 years of kind of history there. Um, and so for me, it, in many senses, it was a chance to go into a scale social enterprise. Um, and what I use that terminology very specifically, scale social enterprise, because the intention of the co-op, I mean, the vision is cooperating for a fairer world. So that's, you know, why do you work at the co-op? Well, that's why I work at the co-op, because I'm on the level of the playing field. And, and you go, oh, my God, that's a proper purpose. And you go, wow, what, so what can we do with that? So I think it starts there, really, which is that the journey that we began with was to sort of rediscover that purpose, which is what I just described, and then to think about how do you prove that? So how do you, how do you create action, activity, and outcomes um, inside the co-op and then that people can see on the outside that mean that your purpose is a real thing. Um, and that's been an unbelievable privilege because in many senses, I, I find it, it's kind of interesting, I think for particularly chief customer officers, because you often go into these very large organizations and things that you think might exist don't. You know, say some go, let's, let's have, let's, can someone send me the brand strategy? And then, and then people sort of look at you and go, um, I think uh, then you get something and you look at it and you go, actually, that's not a brand strategy. Um, so a lot of our challenge really was that we'd arrived and we had lots of things in place, but they weren't all harmonized. Um, and, and that was a really, so, you know, membership wasn't really firing. The business units weren't really connected. Food was doing an incredible job. Um, and still is doing an incredible job, but it, it was all a bit disconnected and we were very fragmented. And then in addition to that, I mean, we, we just didn't have the technology or the data or the capability to be modern. Um, in fact, in my, my second week there, we had a, a sort of small data breach and it was in, we were using a, a a surveying company hadn't encrypted the data and we had something like 250 records that were breached. And so it's not, you know, in the scale of things that I've had to experience, it wasn't a biggie, but, but anyway, long and short of it, I had sort of emergency response set up a team. We had a call and I said, look, the first thing we'll do is get an email out to those 250 customers in the next hour. Um, and the phone went silent. Okay, guys, said, what's, What's going on? So it takes us 10 days to get an email out. And, you know, this is 2017 or 2018. And, and, and you sort of then you go, oh, right, okay. Well, and, the, and then, so, so we, we then had to go on a big, so we, we did a proposition transformation and technology 
and data transformation. And then, you know, we were on that happy road and then the pandemic arrived. Um, and actually it was really interesting because there were, there were a series of things that it did. It made what we were trying to do more relevant than ever. So all of the things that we were trying to do, fairer world, because the gap widened, right? I mean, you know, we've seen that and it's going to continue. And so, you know, we were a business trying to close the gap. So people went, they're good guys. I'm going to buy, buy my carrots there because they're helping do that. Um, and then also all our plans are more relevant. So we were working on a plan to relaunch membership and we accelerated that because the proposition was value and values. Because ultimately you join the co-op, you get some money back when you get co-op brands and then we give you some money and you can invest it in your community. And so we changed and originally it was 5% for you and 1% for community. And we went, no, let's, let's make it 2% for you and 2% for the community. And, and then let's give you some personalized offers. And that's been very successful. Mm. So, so, and then obviously our community plan was put on steroids because we were working on food poverty and scarcity. We were working on youth skills and employment. You know, we were working on climate. And so suddenly all of the things that our strategy had created became even more relevant. And then e-commerce, I mean, you know, we've started this little, and I call it, it's a community commerce model. It's not a, a Tesco.com commerce model with warehouses. We, we deliver e-commerce from our local shops. So we're building employment in local communities, you know, and it's a community commerce model. But that, you know, went crazy uh, and is still growing. You know, I mean, we grew, I think, as you know, fast than Amazon's um, food business did last year. And I think it's, it's one of those things that you, you continue to see rising and growing in an, in an amazing way. And I suppose, you know, as you said, Phil, um, today's my last day. So um, you know, it's amazing to be sort of talking about it. You know, I, I decided, like many things, you know, our, my, our kind of jobs tend to be a four to five year gig to burn yourself out or there's not out much else that you can do. But, but the thing that I always knew about the co-op was it, it, I don't know what the right analogy is, but it's a bit like something, it's a bit like a sort of, beautiful watch that gets handed down through the families where I think your sort of job is to try and make sure it's better when you leave and it's in, and then you hand it on to the next team who then take it on the next stage of the journey and the final thing that I would say and I don't mean this in a kind of flaky emotional sort of way is we need more businesses like the co-op the gaps don't get closed the, the government doesn't have enough money to close the gaps that exist right and so we need businesses to do, to move beyond CSR and move into impact and really begin to think about how do we create an economic wheel that is value creating, not value destroying. And that's on both on the social mobility side, but also on the communities, on the, on the climate side. And, and so for me, it's been a privilege to make a bit of a difference there but also to sort of make it much more visible and to talk about it in a more meaningful way is, is very important. That's brilliant. Think, a couple of things there. One is you've put on 1.7 million new clients during the pandemic. So yeah. if you were to go out 
on a bang, I would say that's that's quite a bang. That's that's amazing. Uh, and you mentioned uh, the results being better than Amazon's in, in any year that 2020. No, it's it's an incredible story. It is. And some, think, some of the stats around it, Phil, are just amazing. And I know you know we you know you can you can unpack lots of different elements of, of the co-op journey. But for example, like the the app, you know, the co-op app has surpassed the one million download mark. You know, with a rating of four point four stars. I mean, that's that's you know just a phenomenal statistic in, it own, in its own self. And has that been part of that kind of e-commerce journey that you've been on with the co-op? Yeah, totally. I mean, the, the I've got screenshots of it. It's a bit sad, but I was so we were so excited last year when we were we were number two behind the COVID app and that in terms of downloads. I wasn't sure whether that was a good thing or a bad thing. And then there were weeks where we were, you know, sort of the, we were in we were with Zoom, you know, Microsoft Teams, so we were in pretty good company. But absolutely, I mean, the thing that we did with the app and. I don't know whether you're a members, but was to try and create something that is, you know, perfectly simple, but does what it needs to do for the missions that we serve. And, you know, we're all guilty of this. I'm guilty of this in the past, which is over-designing or over-engineering things. And, you know, we've tried in many senses, you know, we've, we've got, and by the way, you know, I mean, I haven't done all this. I've got an amazing team of people. Um, you know, you, 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 this is an unbelievable team effort. And, you know, I think about the digital product team that lead that work and the data team and, and the characters behind it. And they've deployed that, you know, Philip, be proud of us, you know, user-centered design, you know, let's solve the problem that the customer has and let's focus on the best way of doing that. And then let's design it in a way that really works and, and be quite pure about it. So I think we've benefited from that, you know, because, I mean, the app usage is off the charts. Um, and um, it's been a real component in driving permissions, frequency, value, engagement. Um, and what's really interesting about it is it's, it really has got that dual benefit, which is value and values. So the value bit, is, which is working, it's just personalised offers. And, you know, it's a fairly simple thing, but the algorithm behind it is so good. Uh, and I can't tell you the results because apart because they're commercially sensitive, but they're the best results I've ever seen. Wow. And uh, and then there's the values bit, which is go in, see a little who you want to help in your local community and place your money there. And the combination of those two things is is incredibly powerful. And it reminds me of, you know, we worked on years ago, um, Computers for Schools. You know, it's just a good example of there's something for you, but there's something for your local community. And that, that is at the heart of the, the co-op brand. It's an ethical brand trying to make good things happen in your local community, you know. And I think that cocktail's really worked. Matt, when I was um, researching and finding out things about you that I didn't, no, uh, one of the things that really stood out was the extremely high opinion that everyone you've worked with has of you, right from the top down and throughout your entire career. The words human, genuine, and authentic are all common themes. Um, what do you think it takes to be a good leader? Um, oh, you know, it's, I, I, 
fun it you know it's very it's quite emotional to hear you know that sort of thing said about you because it's I think the first thing is you don't set out to achieve that outcome and I'll say a bit more about that I think the first thing is it's just it can't ever be about you and I think if you leading isn't about you it's about others you know and I, I always think that you know your job is to sacrifice yourself for the good of the team, you know, and, and, and actually, you know, I've been criticised over the years for being a bit too much of a team player. And sometimes I'm impacted as a consequence of it. And frankly, I don't really care um, because it, for me, it's never been about getting to the top of the ladder. And I think back of, of, of over my career, you know, I think about, you know, going to Asia to set up TBWA and Tequila. And I, I, I'm like super proud that all the people I hired, this is years, years on, are leading. They're like the managing director of every agency in that region. And I look, I think, wow, those guys that hired are now running and, you know, the business is 10 times bigger than the one I started. And I'm like super excited about that. I think that's such a privilege to have seen them rise to the top. So I think... There's that. I think the other thing is that is kindness, confidence and belief for this sort of things, which is that I think kindness is an important business word. And I think it's confused for niceness and it shouldn't be. Um, and, and I'm I'm genuinely I, I, I combine that with a belief in people's ability. I just believe that people are good and that, and that your job as a leader is to help them be brilliant. And the bit that you have to combine with that is you, you have to put them in a context. And your job as a leader is to put them in a context where they can succeed and their confidence is not impacted. And, and I think if you do that and you think about that all the time, and I do, I think about the team, the people, where are they? What's their workload? Are they dipping? You know, do, do, are, they, are you giving them something that they need support in so that they don't lose trust or lose self-belief? And I think if you can give people belief, confidence, space, trust, combined with a vision, I've, been, I've almost my entire career, I've never, ever seen that fail. The thing that you then need to do is you need to work out we needed to step in. And I don't mean step in to control, step in to make sure that they don't fail. And then the final bit is celebrate their success, not yours, which is that it's really important that you, you embarrassingly make sure that they know you know and that others know that they know they did it, not you did it. And ultimately, you get the credit. I mean, you, you, you are not really so interested in the credit. I find it a bit embarrassing being called out for the credit but but that that that's it for me I think um and I think in the end you know my grandfather always said to me you know if you are gonna if you're climbing up the ladder of life make sure that you're kind and nice to people because you never know you're going to meet on the way back down mm. um and the other thing that always stood you know, was make sure his other phrase was make sure the ladder's up against the right wall as well. That's quite important. Uh, <laughs> okay. So, so you know, I'd say that my family upbringing, you know, being in Asia, you know, having had a you know exceptional, particularly my mum, who's who's 
kind and has a very sort of interesting view on the world has helped me to behave in a way that I hope has led to people saying those nice things about me. Which well, would... Apart from your granddad, uh, who is the most inspirational role model in your career to date? Um, and I've, 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 Shem, I've ruled out your granddad now, haven't I? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, this is such a difficult, um, such a difficult question because you have people that appear in different chapters of your career rather than people that stand out. I mean, I, I Terry Hunt, um, I mean, what a guy. I mean, <laughs> just what a guy, what a thinker. Um, you know, brilliant. And I, and I thought he was, he was an, an, an except, you know, he made a big difference to the way that I thought about things. Um, you know, a relentless focus on customer and thinking about how do you, you make a brand personal and, and how do you use data to do that. Tim Mason, you know, I think Tim, who, I don't know if you know Tim, but Tim was the marketing director for Tesco for two decades, probably. And then a bit and and has since retired, but but I mean he was an exceptional client and an outstanding thinker and an inspirational leader. And and I actually don't think gets enough of the credit that he deserves for some of the amazing things that Tesco was able to do and that he enabled us, you know, we were all involved in it, and people listening to this will have been involved in creating that transformation that Tesco went through. So I definitely have him, him up there. And then finally, I, I probably, although he won't like me saying it, and some people would probably think I'd, that'd be a bit odd for me to, to say it. I think, you know, although I didn't work for him that long, Dave Lewis was a pretty amazing guy. But he was, a, he was the guy who was, you know, and there was a lot of things going on at Tesco that had already changed that absolutely he benefited from. And that's the case in any job, you know, when you arrive somewhere, sometimes the people taking, you know, the, the pioneers get the arrows and the settlers get the land. And, you know, but he made some really big calls and he did that with real focus and real discipline. And he brought back that sort of ruthless focus on the difference between brand man between the brand and brand management and and then brand activation and i think that sort of fmcg mindset that he had allowed tesco to re-love the brand and then to focus on those things that 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 would make it successful and then i have to say steve morales who's the ceo of the co-op you know takes a lot of bravery to get behind the purpose uh, like cooperating for a fair world. And he's an exceptional leader. He's an outstanding human being. Um, and, you know, I'm hoping that we'll continue to see that business, you know, rise and shine way into the future and, and, and that more businesses will do and be and behave like the co-ops behave. That would be great. Isn't that amazing. Matt, I've got about 50,000 other questions I want to ask you, but, you know, based on what we've been chatting about, but we've got to come to land. So just a couple more as we come to land. Sure. And it's a slightly different one, maybe, but back in 2008, I think in your Tesco years, you addressed the uh, British Retail Consortium 
And then you kind of gave what was seen as a progressive and forward thinking speech. I think you said, and you can quote me if I'm wrong, technology is the key enabler, which will allow us to create the retailer of the future. And the aim has to be to create a seamless blend between the stores and a digital business. This is back in 2008. And I think you've highlighted how you've done that. But if you were addressing the same audience today, what would you say is critical to the future of retail? Yeah, it's such an interesting question. I, I probably don't want to answer it because given I'm leaving the car, I should be charging people a lot of money to tell them the answers. That is true. But, but, but um, I mean, I think most people haven't fully delivered on that reality. Yeah. Um, so I think that's still, and I think a lot have had to accelerate in the last year, but I still think that absolutely holds true. But I would add to it that, you know, the mechanics of that you can do really well and still a lot of people need to do more there. I call it brilliant basics. Right. And there's still a lot of businesses that are focused on, you know, compelling difference and change in the game when your search doesn't work and you can't get the product. And, and so, so I still think there's a lot of headroom for most businesses in Brilliant Basics. But I think you need to combine that with purpose. So I think that the, the mechanics can get you so far, but I think you need to combine that with some kind of difference. And uh, so I think the brand overlay to that is absolutely critical. And then, and then I think on, on top of that, you've really, really got to think about your product and curation of your product and service delivery. So I, I, I think that particularly for a lot of retailers over the next two, three, four, five years, everyone's got to become more efficient, everybody. So it means that you've got to really think about how are you using that technology, not just for the customer, but for the organization and the operation. Because ultimately, you've got to create more meaningful work for colleagues. It's still pretty difficult for colleagues running e-commerce operations. You know, so how does the technology make their lives easier? Right. You know, you, you still, there's a lot of complexity in the supply chain that needs to improve, you know, uh, and a lot of, Retail businesses are doing transformations using technology. Um, so I would say do that plus those other things. Um, and of course, you need to learn new skills to do that, which most customer functions are trying to engage. So it then means that the burden also becomes that customer functions need to become more multi-channel and content orientated in the way that they engage with audiences. So that means that, that, and we're nowhere near, you know, there's still a lot of theory and then, and, and operationalizing that is, is I think the next stage of the, of the battle. Wow. Um, so that would be my, sorry, it's not, not the, the clearest answer in the world. But going back to the beginning of the answer, what you said in 2008 still stands true for many, many brands. So, you know, there's a lot to leverage and to realise there as well. So you mentioned the word complexity, which is our final question. So as an, as an agency, we're all about making complex things wonderful, wonderfully simple. So what is one of life's complexities you would like to see made simpler? <laughs> All right. So I, I read the question, actually, because you, know, you, you sent it to me. I thought, oh my goodness, what's my answer to that? <laughs> yeah, and, and I, I sort of 
it's a terrible thing. And I suppose it's because we started the health business, digital health business, which unfortunately we had to sell just because it, it, it was more, we needed more money to scale it, to go from startup to scale up. But the thing that I would change is the way that we interact with government services. I mean, why in the world do we have multiple logins to multiple platforms? It drives me mental. You know, you've got NHS login, we've got .gov login. And it, the reason why it, it drives me mad is there's so much value unlock by joining that technology and that capability up. And so much good that can happen as a result of doing that. Now, most IT departments would call it single sign-on. So maybe we can call it that. But I would, wouldn't it be amazing if you could just sign into that world and travel around it in a really, really easy way? And it drives me mad that you can't. <laughs> wow, good answer. That is, there we go. There's a, there's a big challenge. I think thank you very much for doing this on your last day. So, and today you're off to the Ivy. That's Hello. right. A little bit yeah. of a celebration. Yeah. Uh, and, and I assume you can't tell us what next. No, I can't. Um, I had, to be honest with you, Phil, I haven't got any massive immediate plans. So if anyone listening wants to, you know, drop me some ideas, then I'm, I'm, I'm open, very open-minded. Um, I'm non-exec chair of Uni Days, uh, which is a sort of brilliant student reward uh, platform, but it's more than that. It's about helping students to discover new skills, new education, new opportunities. So we're at a really exciting time in the, that journey. So I, I'm going to spend a little bit more time helping them in the next stage. And then I'm, I'm going to do some advisory stuff and non-exec stuff, but I'm looking for another full-time exec job. I need, I need another transformation to do. <laughs> nice. Right, that's what a great place to end. So now you can get on your bike. Yeah. <laughs> Go and have two or three hours cycling and clearing your brain. Go and have lunch. And uh, I, I think you're going to get more offers than you realise. Oh, bless you. Well, listen, bless lovely you. to see you and talk to you. Thanks very much. Such a privilege. And the final thing I think for me is thank you to all the people involved in all the things that I've done. None of the things I've talked about are me. They're all involved. Lots of amazing people and that. That has been one of the things that I'm so proud of, that having a chance to work with such incredible people. So thanks to all of them if they're listening. Brilliant. Thanks so much, Matt. It's been an absolute pleasure. Good to see you, Matt. Take care. Goodbye. Thanks. All. Take care. Good to see you guys. See you soon. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Wonderful People podcast. This podcast was brought to you by Wonderful Creative Agency. Find out more at thewonderful.co.uk.